8, 5, Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Come on up, Lefraz. Thank you. We were on holiday in South Africa, cruising along the highway. Our three children strapped into their seats in the back. Colin Buchanan, blaring out Bible verses. You know Colin Buchanan? Uh, the wife and I, uh, nibbling on a bit of biltong. Who knows what biltong is? Yes, the dried meat. Um, and then we drove past uh, what looked like a rugby school match, a school rugby match. Okay? So a fair number were gathering for this match, maybe a couple of hundred supporters, uh, probably some teachers, probably some parents, some other students. Uh, it looked like quite an important match uh, for a school game anyway. And I casually said, I wonder who's playing. And then we drove on. I remember letting my imagination wander a little bit at that point, And I remembered the matches I used to be involved in as a child. The Tuesday afternoon uh, training session, Thursday afternoon training followed by the pep talk. Friday, break time conversation dominated by rugby chat. We need to get our defensive lines right. Hope the fly-off is fit to play. Have you heard the size of their number eight? Excitement interfering with sleep the night before. The big breakfast, the energy drinks, the warm-up. The opposition arrives. And before you know it, the match is over. And it went one of two ways. Every match, a huge event in a young person's life. And yet, to the adult traveler on the highway, cruising past at 70 miles an hour, the match is of no importance whatsoever. A mere curiosity. I wonder who's playing. And then life moves on. Are our lives and the things that we obsess about at risk of being a little bit like a school rugby match? crucially significant to us, but of very little consequence in the greater scheme of things. How do we know whether the things which occupy our time, our energy, our money, the things we obsess about, how do we know those things are actually worthwhile? 
How do we know whether our lives will really count? We're a great mix of people in this room. We all have different things going on. I'm sure you've got more important things in your mind than, uh, than rugby matches. We'll have work, we'll have social engagements, family life, saving for that mortgage, um, you know, studying towards that qualification. In fact, I'm sorry to bring up the rugby again. We may have all sorts of different things occupying our minds, but how do we prioritize? And, and what do we really throw our weight behind? And how do we know that those things will be of real and lasting consequence? Are we just caught up in our own little pocket of human experience here in this little snapshot of time and space um, on this little island? Or can our lives really count for eternity? We're considering a few words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ shortly after he rose from the grave. Uh, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open at Luke 24 because we'll be referring back to it again and again. These words give us a framework for managing our lives in light of what God is doing in this world. If our lives are going to count, we need to understand God's agenda and bring our agenda in line with His great agenda, right? Jesus' words will help us to get real. We'll zoom in on one sentence, really clear, really simple, really easy to understand. And Jesus shows us three things, three things that are required as the unfolding story of the Bible, God's story, humanity's story, reached its climax. Three things were necessary to fully and finally achieve the salvation of God's people and the restoration of all creation. Three things. You can see these things in Luke 24, verse 46 and 47. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Three things for God's salvation plan to be complete. The Christ must suffer. The Christ must rise. The Christ must be proclaimed. Are we in touch with reality? Are we living in light of these words? So let's first just think about these words in the context in which they were given. So we're in Luke chapter 24, uh, and the, the risen Lord Jesus is with his disciples, and it's a shock to them. It's a total shock. They're absolutely freaked out, and we would be too, because they'd just seen Jesus brutally executed only a few days earlier, and here he is standing in front of them. Is it a ghost? That's what they're thinking. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. But he calms them down. He shows them that it really is him uh, by letting them examine his hands and his feet, verse 39, and by eating a bit of fish, verse 42. Now imagine, just imagine being in that little meeting with the Lord Jesus as reality begins to dawn on our limited minds. Our Messiah, the one uh, we had seen brutally executed a few days earlier, is standing there in front of us, alive and well. How would our minds even begin to compute? How would we even begin to get to grips with a reality that's so wildly beyond our limited human experience? A reality that is so impossible that we find ourselves totally unprepared for what is now so obviously true. 
unprepared. Despite our Lord repeatedly saying that he would rise, despite the Old Testament scriptures saying the same. So an encounter so foreign to us in our limited human experience and capacity that we are inclined to disbelieve. That's our inclination. Until the evidence demands that we get in touch with reality. Jesus was there. They could touch him. They could see him. They could hear him. They saw him die, and yet there he was alive. And he says they should have been expecting him. So look at verse, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I told you, said Jesus. This is, these are the words that I told you. The scriptures told you that all this needed to happen. Now let's think about that. In what way does the scriptures tell us that these things needed to happen? It's not that every single chapter of the Bible speak directly of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation. There are many verses that wonderfully do speak directly about those things. They speak about his death. They have pierced my hand and feet. They divide my garments among them, etc., there are verses that speak of his resurrection. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And there are verses that speak of the gospel going out. The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So yes, there are many verses that prophesy in specific detail about these things. But more than that, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, show us the human condition. They show us the sheer impossibility of a relationship between people like us who are fundamentally evil according to the Bible and a holy and a perfect God. If you don't believe me, and I'm sure you read the Old Testament a lot, do a Bible overview, have a look. As history unfolds, even the most spiritually privileged of nations, Israel, who which the Bible story zooms in on, even those that most privileged and religious of all people are shown to be totally unable to live in God's ways. Unable to love Him with all their hearts. Unable to love each other as we ought. It's the human condition. But as history unfolds, God's gracious character is also revealed. And His promises to Israel and to all humanity grow in size and in definition, and the things that are needed to rescue humanity become clearer and clearer. A righteous, spirit-filled king is needed. A new Moses is needed to teach us God's ways. A Passover lamb is needed, an atoning sacrifice. Spirit-filled hearts, new hearts are needed, etc. And then Messiah comes, and he fulfills all of it. So you see, this is why Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The scriptures told you, I told you. These things had to happen. They were always going to happen. And the disciples totally missed the point. Totally missed the point. And then, 
this truly remarkable thing happens. A miracle happens. Jesus unlocks his disciples' minds to understand. It's a real red pill, blue pill moment. Have you seen the Matrix? So here's the red pill and the blue pill. It's a moment of revelation. Jesus switches on the lights. And he does it by giving them an understanding of the Bible. Look at, look at verse uh, 45 and 46. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So Jesus opens his disciples' minds to understand personally what he has been declaring publicly throughout history. Throughout the ages he's been saying this, but now they understand it. Isn't that remarkable? What is needed to enlighten us? What is needed to bring us in line with reality? The Bible plus a miracle from Jesus. That's what is needed. That's what is needed for everyone around us too. The veil is lifted, eyes are opened, the disciples can see. This is what God has been saying all along. Do you see it yet? Do you see it yet, disciple of Jesus? The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Friends, have our minds been opened to the scriptures? Have we really understood that all of history, all of scripture, has shown these three things to be necessary for the salvation of God's people? Christ crucified. Christ raised. Christ proclaimed. Two of these things are wonderfully complete, aren't they? Jesus died on the cross. He took the sins of the whole world and paid for them at Calvary. We sang about it earlier. It is finished. Jesus rose from the grave. Death is defeated. Satan is disarmed. Christ is enthroned. One thing remains. One thing remains on God's agenda during this age in which we live. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance, Jesus Christ is Lord. Bring your life under his authority. Uh, bring his life under his loving authority. Forgiveness, a price has been paid. Pardon is offered. Uh, come home, come into the family. That's the message. And it needs to be proclaimed. It's a spoken message of repentance and forgiveness. Spoken taught, lived out, preached, applied to every area of our lives. One thing remains, Christ proclaimed. So whose job is that? Whose job is that to proclaim Christ? Um, look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit would come and clothe these disciples with power. I love that phrase. Do you love that phrase? Who wants to be clothed with power? I want to be clothed with power. In Luke's second book, what we call Acts, uh, you might want to flip there quickly if you want, uh, Acts chapter 1. So just very briefly, Acts chapter 1, it's a, it's a similar commission. It's a similar thing that is said. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's people will receive power. They will receive God's own spirit and so they will witness, so they will proclaim Christ. The book of Acts traces that proclamation not just by the apostles, the original witnesses, but by normal Christians like you and me. As you read through Acts, you clearly see that happening. Wherever God's people go, they spread the word, they proclaim Christ, and as they proclaim Christ, people are saved and the church grows. I know you know this, but it is worth being really clear about this stuff, right? Look at Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 7. So that's towards the end of the Jerusalem phase. Acts 6 verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of uh, disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So it's the word of God that increased. Acts chapter 8, if you want to flip there quickly. Persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. The apostles stay put. Normal Christians like you and me, they flee Jerusalem. And what do they do as they go? 8 verse 4, Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Later on in Acts chapter 13 verse 49, this is speaking of modern day Turkey as the word is spreading. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And Acts 19 verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You get the points. The word of the Lord, Christ proclaimed by spiritful people. So brothers and sisters, three things determined by God for the salvation of his people. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ proclaimed. Two things are gloriously complete, ticked off the list. One thing remains. Only one thing remains on God's agenda. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. We see it in Jesus' statement to the uh, disciples. We see it in the life and early witness of the church. So where are we all on this essential priority? Are we in touch with this reality? Are we laboring in the power of the Spirit to proclaim Christ individually, in our family lives, together as a church? Is God's priority our priority? It's a challenging question, isn't it? I'm challenged. It's a worthwhile question. I hope many of you will say, yes, actually, that is what we live for. And I hope we will be encouraged. So Luke writes to give us clarity, to give us confidence. That's the whole purpose of his, of his writing. God is not like so many bosses, uh, you know, muddled on his priorities, you know, jumping from this project to that project, always changing his mind. Uh, who has worked for bosses like that? It's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? Just um, never clear. It's energy sapping and downright depressing when priorities keep changing. And you never know what the focus should be. But it's not so with God. He gives us one priority. Those two fingers, one. One priority. He makes it very clear. And if we are clear on that priority and getting on with the work, how rewarding. How encouraging. You know, I just want to speak personally about how I feel about Redeemer. It's, um, it's brilliant to see what's going on here. It's just wonderful. I'll let you in on a little secret. I thought Will might mention it earlier, but uh, I attended the Vision Day 
for Redeemer Croydon in 2013, back end of 2013, in a little, uh, it was in your front room, was it? Uh, I remember Sylvie's mom and dad being there, David and Annie. Um, yeah, and we thought we might join. Look, it was a little bit far for us. We ended up somewhere else. Sorry about that. But, um, but it was just an idea at that point, right? It was just an idea. It was just a bunch of people who felt called to proclaim Christ in Croydon. And there was nothing. You didn't even know you are going to be called Redeemer yet. And, uh, and look at what the Lord has done through your labors, uh, as many of you are who are contributing and laboring in proclaiming the gospel. We should be encouraged. I'm sure you've got your share of frustrations and uh, disappointments and challenges, just like any church. But we should celebrate the fact that we are, you know, we are in line with God's agenda and we're proclaiming Christ. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for Redeemer. Praise the Lord for you guys. These verses are meant to give us clarity and confidence. And if we're getting on with the work, we should be encouraged. But I'm sure most of us will be challenged too, because just like me, we all have our learner plates on. Um, and I'm challenged. I hope you are challenged. We're so easily tempted to give lesser things a disproportionate place in our lives. We take our eye off the ball. Uh, brothers and sisters, take a few minutes. We're going to take a few minutes to review this to review our lives before God. Just think about your week. Think about how you spend your time and your energy. What is your priority, really? What are we absorbed by? Let's think carefully about this. The Bible urges us to consider what we're doing with our lives. The Bible says that some Christians will be saved as if plucked from a fire and that others will have the joy of having their work commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is serious stuff. What is your priority in life? Where does proclaiming Christ sit on, on, the, on the priority order of your thinking? In your planning and in your spending of, spending of our time and our energy and our money. Uh, some of us might be called to be full-time pastors or evangelists or missionaries. Um, if that's you, what a wonderful thing if the Lord's opened your eyes to see His priority. It's worth devoting your life to that. But I don't really want to talk about that so much as just thinking about everyday life. Just everyday life. We're called to proclaim Christ in the nitty-gritty of what may sometimes feel like a pretty mundane existence for all of us. So, so let's think. That, you know, Not all of these will relate to you, but I'll just throw out a few examples for you to think about. So God gives us families. He gives us families to love and to nurture and to enjoy. But we so easily get wrapped up in family life and family ambitions. It's all about the kids, says our culture. It's all about the kids. And we end up frantically ferrying the children from one activity to the next. Mandarin, kickboxing, cupcake baking, those are all necessities. The kids simply have to experience these things these days. Uh, it's all about the kids. No, it's not actually. It's not all about the kids. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. So the Christian mom and dad, the Christian grandparents... They care far more about nurturing a love of Christ, a love of people, training their children in hospitality and service and kindness. The Christian parent cares more about knowledge of God than, than obsessing about whether little Bobby will make it to university or, or whatever. So that's one area. What about friendships? So God gives us friendships. Think about Christian friendships for, for a moment. 
Christian friendship shouldn't be inward and exclusive, wrapped up in our own pleasure and enjoyment, giving only because we get back, looking for affirmation from one another, finding identity from the people we mix with. Christian friendship should be, um, you know, us doing discipleship together, us being apprentices of Jesus together, learning and growing and sharpening each other, serving those around us, teaming up in order to reach others with the gospel of Christ, partnering, laboring together. That's what Christian friendship looks like. Mutual support on mission for Jesus. God gives us work. Let's think about work. He gives us work to earn a living, to enable us to be generous, to show God's wisdom and grace by listening to our boss, by telling our colleagues about Jesus. And yet how easily work becomes the thing we're obsessed by. So easy. I fall into this temptation even when I'm in Christian ministry. So it's all about the credit I deserve, the promotion I deserve, the money and the respect that I deserve. So easily becomes that, doesn't it? Family, friendship, work or career as our culture calls it. So easy for these things to become our ultimate realities. So easy for them to absorb all our time and our energy and our money. Or lesser things like the television or the PlayStation or YouTube or social media or the gym or booking.com. Even church life, even church life can sometimes become something other than proclaiming Christ. It can become a self-serving institution, a social club with all the politics and the cliques and the quibbles that the local cricket club or the school council might have, rather than proclaiming Christ. So like a child's rugby season, week after week, month after month, we get caught up and drawn into living in, living for these lesser things, obsessing about these things. We get entertained, we get distracted, we lose perspective. And we need a reality check. We need to take the red pill. We need the Bible plus a miracle. We need Jesus to open our eyes afresh. There's one thing, only one thing left on God's agenda in this age in which we live. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The question isn't how gifted am I? How influential am I? God gives us all differing abilities and and, and differing opportunities. The question is, given what God has given me, how faithful am I? How wise am I? How shrewd am I? Am I living to proclaim Christ in my family life, in my friendships, in my work life, here at church? Am I living in line with God's revealed reality? Am I asking God every day to clothe me with spirit power so that I can get on with the job of proclaiming Christ? Brothers and sisters, our spirit-filled lives and our spirit-filled Spirit-filled words are mighty to proclaim Christ. It's God's weapon to proclaim His King to this world. We are the light of the world. We are salt. But salt without saltiness is worthless. If we don't go all in with Jesus, we become totally irrelevant. Let's not obsess about these lesser things. Let's obsess about Jesus and making Him known whatever the hand we are dealt.
So maybe just reflect for a moment. Let's just, let's just give it a second for the Holy Spirit to bring those things to our minds right now. If there's anything that the Lord is bringing to your mind that you want to bring to Him and just say, sorry, Lord, um, I lay this down, I repent. Um, I want to change my attitude in this matter. I want to change my focus. Let's just take a moment. I'll give you a few seconds. Repent, Jesus Christ is Lord, the kingdom of heaven is here. Bring, bring this area of your life under his loving authority. Be forgiven, a pardon is offered, a price has been paid. Ask our Father to fill you with his Holy Spirit to live and speak for Jesus. Friends, there may be someone here who has never um, committed their life to Christ, has never asked Jesus to be Lord of their life. It was at a meeting very much like this one where I first did that, um, simply went and prayed with one of the leaders afterwards, said a very simple prayer, and God entered my life forever. If that's you, don't, just don't go home without doing that. You can have peace with God today. You can come into His family today. Um, so please take that opportunity. So that's me. I'll finish with a prayer. Please come and join me for uh, that quick demo of how to read the Bible with, uh, with the people around you. Uh, if someone had said to me seven years ago that my colleagues would be willing to read the Bible with me, I'd say they're absolutely nuts. Um, but it's seven years later, and you know I've read with a dozen or so colleagues, neighbors, folk at the school gate, etc., um, and I've discovered, as many others have, as they pressed outwards with this offer, that uh, folk, are, folk are more willing to take a look than we, than we often are to, to share. So, so come and have a look. Um, it's, it's been great to, to speak with you. Let me say a quick prayer for us, um, and then I'll hand over back to Will. Father, thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus, such a gracious and glorious King. Thank you that he speaks to us so clearly. He doesn't make it complicated. It is uh, us sometimes who overcomplicate things. Father, life can be intense and busy, and there's so many things that we're involved in, Lord. But we pray that those things will be sanctified, will be uh, in our minds, will be places where we can live and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you for this church. Please commend them to you, commit them to you. Please pray that the light will shine increasingly brightly from this place, uh, corporately together as they meet and do things together, but also wherever you send us in our, in our working weeks, Lord, in the schools and the, and the offices and the, and the places of work, our neighborhoods, Lord. Let your light shine through your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.